Today's video was recorded on May 30th, 2023, and this is a continuation of our series that we're calling Bible 101. And the Bible 101 series covers some of the foundational concepts that we find in our Bible. And it's often taken for granted that we know what these concepts are, or that we fully understand them. But really, these are concepts that we as Christians ought to be able to articulate as the basis of our faith. Now, the first two topics that we've been exploring are redemption and covenant. And so redemption is God's plan. God has a plan of redemption. He's in the process of redeeming the cosmos. And the second part of that is that the plan of redemption is carried out through a series of covenants. Those covenants start with Adam, then Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then, of course, Jesus. And Jesus is the new covenant mediator. So that's how we enter a covenant relationship with God through Jesus through that new covenant. So this week, we're going to be exploring the Mosaic covenant. This is the covenant that God makes with the nation of Israel, and Moses is the covenant mediator. And this is the covenant that structured the most like an ancient Near East suzerain vassal covenant. Now, what we'll find is that it covers Exodus through Deuteronomy. And one of the main reasons for studying this concept of covenant is so that you can begin to see the underlying structure that exists in the Bible. This covenant structure, well, it's woven into the text. And it's so when we raise our awareness of what that covenant structure looks like, well, so many things begin to make sense. Now, to help you do that, I have another handout besides our lesson plan that's at our website. We'll put links in the show notes below. This handout has an outline of the elements of a suzerain vassal covenant, as well as the scripture references where you'll find those elements in the Bible. It's a very helpful handout if you're not familiar with the structure of these covenants. So make sure you download it and it really will enhance your learning experience and give you a reference even to use in the future. Now, one more logistical note. Make sure you subscribe to our channel if you haven't already done so. You can do that by clicking the subscribe button below. And also, it really does help us if you click a thumbs up or leave a comment. In any way that you engage with our channel, it really does. It's through that mysterious algorithm that governs all things YouTube. It really does make our lessons more visible to other people. So it's one way that you can literally help spread the good news around the world. Who knew it could be that easy? And we always appreciate your engagement and any time that you share our lessons with your community through any of the social media channels that you use. So we hope you enjoy this lesson on the Mosaic Covenant and the elements of an ancient Near East suzerain vassal treaty. I'm going to start tonight. I want to take a quick look at something from the Abrahamic Covenant, but I want to show it to you in the New Testament. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Luke 1, I'll be there in a minute. All right, so this is our series. I'm just calling it Bible 101 because what I want to do is go to the very basics of the Bible that often when we end up at a church, it's just kind of taken for granted that we understand these things. And we don't look in detail at them. And often when we do look in detail, things come out of the text. We notice things that we hadn't seen before. We have a different appreciation of what a covenant is or God's plan of redemption or uh, over the summer, I'll be doing the good news. 
Because it's like there's a lot more to that than we tend to. We use those terms without really saying, well, what do you mean by that? And uh, so that's what I'm trying to accomplish with the Bible 101 series. What are these very basic ideas that are in our Bible that we often take for granted, don't think through very much? And then tonight, of course, we'll be on the Mosaic Covenant, Moses. So God's plan of redemption, he's going to redeem the world. There are elements of a covenant with Adam, the Adamic covenant. But then the world goes into chaos. God starts over with Noah. We had the Noahic covenant and the rainbow. He puts his bow in the sky. Then we went to the Abrahamic covenant last week. So God's plan of redemption is being executed through a series of covenants. We're going to look at the Mosaic covenant, which helps establish the rules of the nation, right? They're a gaggle of slaves in, in Egypt. They don't know how to manage themselves. We need some societal guidelines. We need to understand things about worshiping God. You know, you have to have structure. And so this becomes, you know, a constitution of sorts for the nation of Israel. So God creates a nation. Eventually, he's going to place a king between him and the people. And the Davidic covenant that then says, ah, there will be an everlasting king. So you get this idea of a king that stands between God and the people. And of course, when the New Testament comes along, the king shows up. And as N.T. Wright, N.T. Wright, who's the New Testament scholar, his book, When God Became King, the New Testament is telling you this is what it looks like when God becomes king. He's enthroned and Jesus is Lord. And so that's all preparing us for the new covenant. And that's the covenant we enter with God. In relationship with God, we enter that new covenant through Jesus, through the blood of Jesus. So that's our series of covenants. All part of God's plan to redeem not only us, but the whole world. Now, very interesting photo here in the background. So let me tell you a little bit about it. I had, as many times as I've looked for paintings of Moses, I'd never seen this one before. So, I'm probably not going to say this name right, because it's Dutch. But this painting here, it was done by a Dutch Jew, a Jewish painter, Aron de, and I, I want to say Chavez, but that sounds too Latin, so I apologize for not getting that name right. Uh, painted in 1674. And the painting is called Moses and Aaron with the Ten Commandments. Now, there's some significance that I absolutely did not know any of this. So, this painting comes from a synagogue in London. It's called the Cree Church Lane Synagogue. So, C-R-E-E Church Lane Synagogue. And the painter was the first Jewish artist, at least legally, to be working in England after the Jews were readmitted to the nation. And I thought, wait a minute, readmitted? When were the Jews kicked out? Ah, turns out King Edward I in 1290 expelled the Jews from England. There were about 3,000 Jews. Now, 
I had no idea. I had zero idea that the Jews had ever been expelled from England. I knew they were expelled from Spain. But in 1650, they said, okay, Jews are allowed to come back and resettle in England. When they did, they needed a synagogue. And this artist then paints this painting. But uh, some of the stuff I found on it was remarkable about the anti-Semitism that was taking place in the 13th century. And even a painting depicting Jews being beaten up and the Jews have a piece of cloth sewn to their clothes to identify them as Jews, just like what the Nazis did. Remarkable that that all happened in the 1200s in England. Now, apparently, there were still Jews living in England, but they had to be, uh, they had to hide themselves, and they publicly, they told everyone that they were Spanish Catholics. So it's an interesting painting. Obviously, it's going to help us get our mindset around the Mosaic Covenant, but I was just blown away. I had no idea that the Jews had been kicked out of England. So there you go. There's always something, something uh, to learn. A very cool painting. That's why it's, the, it's in Hebrew and it's also in Spanish, because this was a Sephardic community, so they were from Spain. Okay, so this is our fourth in our series on Redemption and Covenant. And the place I want to start off, this is just a little bit of a postscript to last week's lesson about Abraham. So number one on your handout, we saw last week the remarkable action of God when he's cutting that covenant with Abraham, and then the symbolism of God, the presence of God, moving through the pieces, and that God's communicating that by walking that blood path, you're saying, I'll take the penalty. That's how you say that the life is, my life is on the line. So God is basically saying, if you sin, Abraham, or any of your descendants, I'll take the penalty for that. So how is God going to shed blood for the penalty of, uh, for those sins? Well, that's where Jesus comes in, right? So Jesus, one aspect of the death of Jesus on the cross is the moment that God is paying the penalty for those sins. Now, a couple things came to mind this week, and I just wanted to show you that to help you connect the Abrahamic covenant and how important that is to Jesus and the forgiveness of sins, okay? So the first thing I want to do is just a reminder for everybody, redemption. This, we, we often use the word salvation. Uh, the, the more appropriate term is redemption. There are saving acts in the middle, and God is saving us in a sense, but the biblical word is redemption. And the idea of redemption is we're going to bring the presence of God back with the people of God inside of some kind of sacred space. So the presence of God, the people of God, and inside some sacred space or land or the place of God. So that's what redemption is. And the whole Bible is then bracketed by that story. That's the story of the Bible. So we start with Adam and Eve. They're living, right? We're in Eden. Eden is the place. It's the land grant that God gave. God gave them land, said, here, take care of it. But as long as you don't sin, right? So you have the presence of God there. God's presence is with his people, Adam and Eve. And the sacred space, of course, is Eden. That's how the Bible begins. The Bible ends. The same way. This is redemption, the presence of God. Uh, the new Jerusalem is coming down from the heavens. The presence of God is with God's people, and the sacred space 
the new Jerusalem. So when we see that word redemption in the New Testament, this is what God's telling us. We're bringing those three things back together. Now, don't turn there. I'm just going to read it real quick, but just listen to the words of Revelation 21, verse 3. John says, hey, look, I see the new Jerusalem. It's descending out of heaven. And then he says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. He said, look, God is dwelling, or God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and that is redemption. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay, there's the whole picture. Now, inside of that, as I've mentioned, there's land, right? Land, then, in the Bible, we're on a journey to the promised land. So land becomes a metaphor for the place where God dwells. So land is that place. And in the ancient world, the God was tied to the land. And so God gives Israel land. He promises Abraham land. Now we notice God gave Adam and Eve a land grant as long as they didn't sin. God gave Israel a land grant as long as they didn't sin. Now, initially it's physical land, but that idea of land is going to become a spiritual metaphor, right? Because we know God's all over the world, so it doesn't matter where you're at. Land is the spiritual metaphor. It's the place where we dwell with God. We're, we're on a journey to the promised land. And so it's the idea of the sacred space. It's almost like the whole world is Adam and Eve was in Eden. The whole world got cast out, and now we're all trying to get back into Eden. So, okay, why do I have to say all this? Because land or that sacred space is connected to sin. And therefore, the forgiveness of sins, okay? So if you look in Luke 1, this is going to set the tone of what is happening throughout the book of Luke. It's the song of Zechariah. So Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. The name Zechariah means God remembers. Zachar is to remember. Yah is, of course, a shortened for Yahweh. And so Zechariah is going to talk about how God remembered his covenant, okay, and the promise of deliverance or salvation. Okay, so look at verse 6. He's starting out in like a prophecy uh, of a song, we call it. He says, Praise be the, the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Now, what does redeemed? We just went through that, right? God is showing up to redeem Israel, which means the presence of God, the people of God are all going to be in the same place. In Matthew, Jesus gives us, or I'm sorry, in, uh, in, in the book of Matthew, he gives us a, a different name for Jesus, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. And John says the word tabernacled with us. This is God's presence coming back to the people. That's redemption. And it's in Jesus that he's coming back. Uh, verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That's, of course, Jesus. All of this was told through the prophets long ago. 
verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, verse 72, and to show mercy to our ancestors, and then now this is, here's the, the, the big part, and to remember his holy covenant. Which covenant does he remember? The oath he swore to our father Abraham. The whole idea of Jesus coming in in Luke here is set in the context of that Abrahamic covenant. That's why we, last week we can say how much that connects. So he swore an oath he swore. Well, when was the oath swearing? That's the cutting of the covenant. And our father Abraham. What's God going to do? He's going to rescue us from the hands of our enemies. Enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. How's he going to do that if you have sin? Well, God has to forgive your sin. Look down at verse 77. And right here, now we get the connection to the forgiveness of sin. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And you connect the forgiveness of your sins. And I, don't, I know we don't normally do this, but sin, right? Sin equals exile from the land. Adam and Eve had a land grant until they sinned. And they're exiled. They're out of Eden. And so they need the forgiveness of sins to come back into that land. Israel was given land. God said, as long as you don't sin. And then they blew it and they get exiled to Babylon. And what the New Testament is telling us is there's a turning point here because God brings them back from Babylon, but they're still in exile in a way. They're now in a spiritual exile. And that's where the whole world is in a spiritual exile. And so it's another metaphor to look at how do we understand the forgiveness of sins? Why do we need that? It's to get back into that presence of God. Now, I know that was a lot to throw at you right off the bat here, but very important to see how that connects to Jesus and why, even when they're living in the land now, they're in a spiritual exile and why all of us are in a spiritual exile in some metaphorical sense. We're all go heading towards the promised land. We all want to get back into Eden with the presence of God. And that becomes our metaphor for our journey. So, okay. Main point, I just want to show you, it's really important to see how Luke starts off his gospel with the, Zechari the song of Zechariah. And it re references that Abrahamic covenant and the forgiveness of sins. And then this uh, whole idea of sin and exile. That's what we keep seeing over and over and over in the Bible. But we don't tend, because we've abstracted it, we don't tend to think about land so much. Okay, that was just a postscript. Now I want to, I'm going to totally switch gears, but I just wanted to show you that one connection. I'm going to totally switch gears, and we're going to talk now Mosaic Covenant. So number two, when scholars look at the Mosaic Covenant, or I'm sorry, I should say it this way, when scholars look at an ancient Near East covenant, right, between a king, what we call a suzerain, that's the word there, suzerain, is the king, and a vassal state, the subject state. When scholars have found all of these covenants that exist, it's the Mosaic covenant that most closely resembles the entirety of these ancient documents. And so part of my goal tonight is to show you the elements of an ancient covenant, and then show you where they show up inside um, 
it's both Exodus and Deuteronomy, and therefore you, your awareness then, as you're reading Exodus or reading Deuteronomy, you start to realize, oh, there's much more going on than just a story that I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what it's, uh, what it's about. And obviously here, Moses is a covenant mediator, and that's stated explicitly by God, and pretty much all of the elements of the ancient covenants are present. So, okay, let's, if you look at under number two on your handout, <clears throat> these are the, there's going to be six elements, and then you'll have uh, the covenant ratification, we talked about that last week, and then a shared meal. But let's go through how these covenants are structured. Um, so the first one, they all start out with a preamble, and the preamble names the covenant giver. Who's the king? Because it's always a greater and lesser party. So who's the king that gives, that's the covenant giver? Then, and I'll show you an example in a minute, then you're going to have a historical prologue. Uh, why should you obey this covenant? And usually when it's a king, it's because we spared your life, right? We could have conquered you and killed you, but we didn't. So now it's probably a good idea that you obey the covenant. So there's a historical prologue. You get stipulations and obligations. That's basically what's expected out of each party. And this is all the stuff we've covered over the past couple of weeks. You're going to have a um, something about deposition. Where are you storing the covenant? Generally speaking, for those ancient people, when it's a king and a subject state, each party stores a copy of the covenant with their national god. The God's going to protect the covenant, but it's kept in a sacred place. It's just like when you get a mortgage, right? Who, who keeps a copy of the, of the mortgage paperwork? The bank? They have a copy. And you should keep a copy in a fireproof box or in a safe deposit box. Because if there's ever a dispute, you're going to have to pull that mortgage paperwork out and say, well, here's what we agreed upon. So you have to keep it somewhere safe. Uh, under a deposition, there's a periodic reading. You have to be aware of the covenant. So, hey, every once in a while, you need to pull this out and remember all the rules of the covenant. So that's, okay. Uh, there's going to be a list of witnesses. And th this one, I love this one, what God does, because who can be the witness for God, right? The list of witnesses. And it's usually a pantheon of gods from both parties, right? So if you have an Assyrian king and a neighboring state, they're going to pull all their powerful gods because each one is going to show you, look, if you violate this covenant, those gods are coming after you. That's what's going to happen. So a list of witnesses. And then the final one is curses and blessings. This is what happens if you keep it. This is what happens if you don't keep it. And those are fairly standard throughout those ancient covenants. We'll review this in a minute, and I'll show you some examples from Exodus. Okay, and then, the fi and then finally, now that we've got the actual covenant document, we've got to say, aha, let's ratify this, right? We talked about that ratification ceremony last week. I'll show you the one that Moses does. Has to do with blood. We're going to sacrifice an animal. There's going to be, the blood is going to represent the failure to abide by the covenant. And then the final thing we do is share a meal. So you have uh, the communion.
So those are the those are all the steps going on inside of typical covenant. Now, let's go through them one by one and I want to show you where they show up in the Bible and what you probably ought to do is turn I would go to Exodus 20 if you have your Bible available. I mentioned last week they're kind of spread out. So you'll have some in Exodus 20, you'll have a bunch of stipulations and obligations all about society. You'll have the covenant ceremony in 24. Then you'll find a, a reiteration in Deuteronomy. So a lot of the things are kind of between Exodus and Deuteronomy. I mean, you'll get the flavor tonight. Okay, so Exodus 20. Now, if we get if you're looking at Exodus 20, the main topic is the 10 commandments. That's what's on our screen there. Okay? So, we started with the preamble, right? Names the covenant giver, which is going to be God. But I wanted, I put on your handout one example of a covenant giver, because I want you to look at a king's example compared to God, okay? So, this is from a treaty. Uh, I was looking at the guy's name, and it, I couldn't even say the word treaty. Treaty of Supalalumus. Say that a few times fast. This is from the 13th, uh, or I'm sorry, the, yeah, 1375 to 3, 1322 BC. So really old Hittite king, and he's making a treaty. But look at the words, and this is on your handout. He's going to declare himself the covenant giver. And what you find with these kings is the tendency to be a bit braggadocious. They're going to give you how wonderful they are. He says, these are the words of the sun. So he's, his identity is with the sun in the sky. So he, these are the words of, and he gives his name. He's the great king, the king of Hati land, the valiant, the favorite of the storm god. This is a human condition, right? When we are put in charge of something, the tendency is, is to tell you everybody how great you are. You get a bit verbose about the descriptions of the king. And the reason I want to show you that is because when we get to God, God doesn't have to do that. He doesn't feel the sense that he has to tell you how powerful he is. So if we look at the preamble, look at verse, look at Exodus 20, verse 2. The preamble is very simple. I am the Lord your God. That's it. I don't need to tell you how omniscient I am, powerful I am, glorious I am. None of that. He just says, I'm the Lord your God. Okay? That's the preamble. He's the covenant giver right there in the Ten Commandments. Then we go to the historical prologue. Well, what did God do? Why should we obey this covenant that God's about to look at? Look at the rest of verse 2 in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you. In verse, in chapter 19, I carried you on eagle's wings. I did all the work. You didn't have to do anything. I split the Red Sea. I fought the Pharaoh. All you had to do was follow me. And I brought you out of Egypt. Now, what's interesting to scholars, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, and then he says, the land of slavery. Now, and the question that scholars have is, why does he have to add the bit about slavery? 
This is maybe 60 days ago, right? That they're, they just got to Mount Sinai. It's a, around the time of Pentecost. Why does he have to remind them that 60 days ago they were slaves? Because that's how quickly we forget. And it's a reminder, you were in bondage and I brought you out. And now you owe me obedience. So why do we obey Jesus? Because he's graciously accepted us back in when he didn't, he didn't have to. Even when we mess up, our sins are forgiven and we're able to come back in. And that's why we get to. Anyways, historical prologue. Let's go. Uh, stipulations and obligations. Well, you have a whole list. You have the Ten Commandments, and then it's going to go for two chapters telling you, here's what you have to do societally. You shall ha not have any other gods. There's an important one. You, you can't have two suzerains. You can't have two kings. You can't have two covenants with two different kings. You get all of that that's listed in there, the do's and don'ts of the covenant. Um, now, on your handout, Obviously, the list of commandments and the offerings and everything that goes on with God is spread out between Exodus and uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But one thing I want to point out again, I, di I did this in our, the first week. So much of reading the Old Testament is the lens that we read it through. We often talk very negatively about the Old Testament. So, like in the English, it's law. And law, the word law, Boo, I don't like law, it sounds oppressive, right? So when we refer to Genesis through Deuteronomy as law, it's generally negative. But the word in Hebrew is Torah, and it doesn't even mean law. And it's a terrible translation. Torah means to teach, to guide, to instruct. And so when God creates this covenant, he gives a set of rules that are good for us, good for society. Treat your neighbor fairly. Don't violate the laws of justice to oppress the poor. Don't lie, because it's not good for you to lie. I mean, it's, it's wonderful stuff. He's guiding us. He's teaching us. He's instructing us. And so once again, our English kind of, it just sounds bad. We don't like it. Another one, commandment or command. Command is, again, when we think about it, it's kind of like a, it's a negative. It's a little heavy. The word mitzvah is the Hebrew word, mitzvah, and it, they, what the rabbis see in it is that it has an association in the root words of it that has to do with bonding or connecting. And the rabbis say, that's how you connect to God. If God is truth and you want to connect to God, then you have to tell the truth. If you if you want to connect to God, love your neighbor. Love the one that's made in the image of God. That's how you connect to God. And if we could see a commandment not as a, hey, I don't have to do that. Oh, it's an opportunity to connect with God. It changes the way we view the word. It changes the way we read the Bible. And then the last one, it's a word that's used for either sacrifice or offering. And the word's korban. You don't need to know that, but What's important to know is the root of korban, which is the off, the, for offering or a sacrifice, is the idea of to, how do you approach something? How do you come near? And God says, look, I'm holy and you guys aren't. So you have to approach me through an offering, through a sacrifice. And so we look at the sacrificial system as a, 
oftentimes, you know, outdated, ancient thing, it's giving them the idea that you approach God, you come near to God through a sacrifice. And that's our New Testament as well. Jesus is our offering. He's our sacrifice. He's how we come near to God. And so it's when God gives us stipulations and obligations, they're not random. They're going to help the community. They're going to help you as an individual. And they're there to help you see God more clearly and approach God correctly. So it's just helpful when we're talking about our Old Testament not to be so down on. So, okay. That was stipulations and obligations. Now you have, uh, let's go to number four, deposition. Where are we going to put the covenant? Where do the Israelites put the covenant? Because in the ancient world, each party, the king who's making it and the opposite party, they each have their own gods. And they're going to put a copy of the covenant in the temple of their own gods for protection. Well, in this case, the God of Israel is the God who's making the covenant. So where do we put it? You put it in the ark. And the ark of the covenant is inside the tabernacle or inside the temple. And it's where the presence of God is. So what you get is you, you kill two birds with one stone, essentially. God is the protector of the covenant. He's also the covenant giver. So it's put in the exact spot that you would think. Now, we have one question, though. The tablets go in the ark. Now, why two tablets? Why two tablets? Now, here's the thing. In the ancient Near East, each party gets a copy of the covenant. And what we've done, when we think about our Ten Commandments, right, is we think like this picture right here. We think like that. We think. We think that it's two tablets because we're going to put five commandments on one side and we're going to put five commandments on the other side. And that's an even division. And now it all makes sense. That's why we have two tablets, right? Or maybe like you guys remember this movie. So you have two tablets. Here's the thing, though. For scholars who study the ancient Near East, Assyriologists, they're called, they study the archaeological finds from the ancient world, they would say, oh, no, no, we're missing something. We're missing the point of two tablets. Because in the ancient world, the tablets look like this. Let me show you two pictures of tablets. Those are two ancient, very small. You know, you could hold, it's like holding a, uh, you know, an Amazon Kindle or something. These are small tablets. They're made of mud that's eventually dried, and it's cuneiform. So it's using a little stylus, like a pencil, and it creates, you put an indentation, it creates your... So the Ten Commandments could easily, this is what scholars say, the Ten Commandments could easily fit into one small tablet. You don't need to divide them into two and write them in large print, right? The reason that there's two tablets is that you have a copy for each party, one copy for God, one copy for Israel. And that's most likely what would be happening in that ancient ceremony because it's culturally what would happen. And again, it's just like your mortgage. You got to keep a copy of the document in your fireproof safe and the bank keeps a document. And if there's ever a dispute, you pull them out. You say, well, why does God need a copy? Well, they're in the metaphor of the ancient Near East. So 
it's more likely then that the deposition, you're putting it into the ark, each party would have a copy, one's God's, one's Moses, the entire thing's written on a very small little piece of clay. Okay, enough about that. But you got deposition. Then you're going to say, hey, look, we need, to, uh, we need to do periodic reading. Because God wants you to know the Bible, right? And we're not going to read this, but in Deuteronomy, it's uh, chapter 31, 10 to 13, and I put that on your handout. I'm not going to go there, but it basically says, look, every seven years at the Festival of Tabernacles, you got to pull the Torah out so all the people can hear it. Because all the people have to hear this and agree. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, when they're coming back from Babylon, it's chapter 8 starts out, the people gathered together, they hear the Torah read, and the priests and the scribes help them out, help them understand what the meaning was. God wants his people to be familiar with his Torah. You know, it's not hidden, so you get periodic reading. And I think even if you look in, at some point, take a look at it, Acts 15, uh, you know, the, the new church is trying to figure out, what do we do with these Gentiles that are coming into church? We don't know what to do with them. And there's a little sentence in Acts 15 that says, hey, look, the law is read every week. They used to do public readings of the Bible. And if you're in a small traditional town, you just go listen. And so they would do public readings of the Bible. And they, they said, look, they're eventually going to learn the Torah. We don't need to obligate them to learn it and then enter the movement. Enter the movement and then learn the Torah because it's read every week. So you could take a look at that. Now, if you're in Exodus 24, though, let's look at verse 7 because here's Moses. So if you look down at verse 7, Moses, you know, he got the, the book of the, the covenant. I'm sorry, book of book. Can't even say it. He got the book of the covenant from God, and now he's going to read it aloud to the people. So Exodus 24, verse 7, he says, Then he, that's Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. You got to read it. You got to know what's in it. And how did the people respond? We'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Now you can come into an agreement, right? You can't force the uh, covenant onto the people. There's, there has to be the agreement from the people. They have to say yes. Okay, so periodic reading. You have Moses reads it aloud to the people. You get periodic readings that show up later in the Bible. And of course, that's important for us to read the Bible periodically. Um, okay, list of witnesses. This is one of my favorite ones. Um, who's God going to call, right? Who's God going to call for to be a witness for his side? Well, he ends up calling heaven and earth, because what other gods can, you know, you can't call lesser gods. So the list of witnesses that are going to be for this covenant are heaven and earth itself. And there's a couple places in, the, in Deuteronomy you can find that. But let me show you one from the book of Isaiah. So if you want, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 1. This is right at the beginning of as Isaiah is starting out. It's chapter 1, verse 2. Because if, if you violate the covenant, or in this case, if Israel's violating the covenant, the prophets profit not necessarily foretelling the future, but prophets speaking truth to power. The prophets are going to show up to the kings and say, 
you're in violation of God's covenant. And the prophet is the mouthpiece for God, right? And so when Isaiah starts out his book, he starts out uh, chapter 1, verse 2, and he calls the witnesses first. So verse 2 says, Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. Now that's Isaiah, right? That's Isaiah, because the next one says, For the Lord has spoken. And now he's going to quote, it doesn't say, Thus says the Lord, and then hear me, O heavens. So Isaiah knows who the witnesses are to this covenant. I call on heaven and earth as witnesses to show you that Israel has violated the covenant. So it says, For the Lord has spoken, I reared children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. And then it goes on, chapter one. But you can just see how the um, prophets are engaging that, and that's the witness for God. Um, okay, final one. We're not going to go through this because it's lengthy, but Deuteronomy 28. I did just jot a note down on your handout when you have time. Because it is interesting that one of, the, one of the curses is that an enemy will come lay siege to you. And twice in Israel's history, Jerusalem, there was an army that laid siege to Jerusalem. And that was Babylon, violating the covenant. And then Rome did the same thing. So that's what happens in the ancient world. Not a fun way to go if you're inside that city when everything's cut off. So, okay, last part. This is what we need to finish up on. Covenant ratification ceremony, because this is where you're going to formalize that about the penalty. This is what we did all last week. So if you're in Exodus 24, look down at 7 and 8. We were just in 7, so... 7 and 8. This is where Moses is going to ratify the covenant with the people. So we just read this verse 7. He took the book of the covenant. He read it to the people. And they all responded, yes, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And now, verse 8, Moses took the blood. He had already done the sacrifices. He sprinkled it on the people. So. They're covered in the blood. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. And we pay attention to that little phrase there. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there's your covenant ratification ceremony for the penalty. Now, what's intriguing about this is something that Jesus is going to say. Okay? It's the Last Supper. It's the last Passover meal, if we can call it that. He's with his disciples. Jesus is about to be the covenant-ratifying sacrifice. So Matthew 26, 28, he's talking about the cup of wine. This cup, and then he says, This is my blood of the covenant. It's almost exactly repeated, except he says, this is my blood instead of the blood of the covenant. Those disciples are at this meal, and all of a sudden he's quoting Moses about the blood of the covenant. And then he says, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Like, he just took a radical departure from this meal 
But you can see it goes right back into that, the idea of those ancient covenants and the shedding of blood. And so what Jesus is doing, of course, his death looks backwards, right? To pay for the penalties of the past, of the Abrahamic covenant. His death looks forward. He's the ratifying. If you accept this cup of wine, and we'll talk about this next week, if you say yes to this cup of wine, you're saying yes to the new covenant going forward. Okay? So he's got both forward and backward in what Jesus' death represents. Okay. Final one, just to show you that a shared meal actually happens in the book of Exodus. So again, sorry to make you flip back, but Exodus 24, verse 9 to 11, it's a very strange passage. Even the the rabbis weren't sure what to do with this passage because they ratify the covenant with the people. Immediately, God calls them up the mountain. Verse 9 says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. And that's the part that throws people off. Wait a minute. How did they see the God of Israel? Under his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright as the blue sky. And obviously they have this envision that the, the blue sky is like where God's throne is. And then it says, verse 11, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders. Even though he, they saw God, he's not going to destroy them. And it says, they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. And so what people ask is, what's going on here? Why are they having a meal? Well, if you don't know covenant, then you don't know why they're having the meal. And that's why you have to study the outline of covenant. It fits the covenant-making business to have that shared meal. It can seem strange if we read it too disconnected from what's actually going on. And the strange part about they saw God, because that's actually what the text says. And now you have to wrestle with what does that mean that they saw God and ate and drank? But it fits the covenant ceremony. Okay, so that's basically it. Those are the steps of the covenant. You can find them throughout. I tried to give you as many examples so that when you have time later, you can go back into your Bible and read through some of those where they show up, because it takes a couple times, you know, for it to sink into our old, our brains here. Okay, quick review. My postscript from last week, God remembers his covenant with Abraham. That's how Luke starts out. And so the whole tone of Jesus' birth, life, and death is about God remembering that covenant with Abraham. We talked about it, the idea that, you know, we don't really make these connections, but sin equals exile from the land, just like Adam and Eve, just like the sin that God exiled them to Babylon. And then it becomes a metaphor for our spiritual exile from God, from the presence of God, where we don't have to be in Israel right now. That was an ancient concept, but now you can be anywhere, but you're still exiled. You have to make it back into that Garden of Eden. And it begins with the forgiveness of sins. We looked at Suzerain vassal, that's king and the vassal underneath it. So if we can understand all those elements, we begin to see them and how they show up in the text. That helps us understand what's being communicated in that ancient way. I reiterated again tonight, when we approach the stipulations and obligations, it's so important the lens we use, Torah, that's instruction, guidance, to teach, 
mitzvah, how do we connect to God? Korban, I want to come near God. I need a sacrifice to come near God. And that's what Jesus represents. How do we approach God? Of course, we ended with the covenant ratification ceremony from Moses that says, this is the blood of the covenant. And of course, then we find it in the New Testament repeated. Jesus is ratifying. He is the ratifying sacrifice. And in Matthew 26, 28 says, this is my blood of the covenant, which I'm sure the disciples at that point really did, had no clue exactly what that meant. Eventually they got it, but in the moment, there's always, there's always a bit of confusion. So, okay, that's Mosaic covenant. Next on the list, like I said, we're not going to do David. That's the kingship, but we'll move to Jesus and talk about more, another little metaphor within redemption and covenant and marriage. And it's an interesting way to look at this ceremony that we do, the Eucharist ceremony each week, uh, that reflects uh, a wedding ceremony from the ancient Near East. And what would that, what would that be communicating as we're, we want to come close to and approach our bridegroom? It's all set in the context of marriage.